0: And welcome back to the Faculty of Horror, podcasting from the horrid and bonus halls of academia. I'm Alex West with Andrea Subisati. And surprise! Surprise! Didn't expect to see us here. Now. Right now. Right now. But uh, we couldn't stay away. We couldn't stay away. And uh, we are planning to release this episode on Election Day, uh, November 3rd, mm-hmm. 2020. It's just being called the most important election in our modern history. Is that right? Yeah. So we thought, well, should we throw some content out there? Why not? Because we have a lot of listeners in the States. Yes. Um And uh, maybe you're in a lineup to vote right now. Maybe you've already voted uh, and you're kind of like the rest of us, just nervously sitting around your televisions and computers and phones, hoping for the good news that um, Joe Biden is elected president of the United States. But yeah. who knows?
1: What an emotional roller coaster. This has been just, you know, I, I I feel like I've heard so many different hilarious comparisons of Canada, you know, <laughs> it was a while ago that I wrote a book chapter about how Canada is like sitting next to a sleeping lion, mm-hmm. you know, like we have a good relationship, but we don't want to provoke your military, we want to keep things nice and kosher, and now I'm seeing on Twitter that Canada is like the apartment on top of a meth lab, and like... <laughs> I can't say that your election does not affect us, guys. I think anyone who gives a fuck about human beings is watching what's unfolding with uh, some measure of concern, some measure of horror, and that's why we wanted to take it to the
0: horrid halls. And I should say for clarity that we are recording this episode on Friday, October 16th. Yes. Uh, Last night, it was the kind of dueling town halls between Biden and Trump, um, and we're really clearly stating the. Date and the time currently is oh my gosh it's ten to seven yeah. uh, in the evening and so basically all the kind of news coverage right now is just about the town hall and how Trump wouldn't denounce QAnon um, and how Biden's town hall was like a Mr Rogers episode yeah. uh, which was meant to be an insult but actually I thought I'm with I'd like Mr Rogers uh, because I feel like we live through five to six news cycles. Every week right now. If we
1: recorded this episode this time last week, it would be a different episode. Mm-hmm. If we were to record it a week from now, it would be a different episode. There is fresh hell in this subject every time I look at Twitter. So yes, thank you for that timestamp.
0: And today, we are going to talk about a... can. Well, it's not a Canadian film, but it was made by a Canadian. It was shot in Canada. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And that is David Cronenberg's The Dead Zone. This
1: was entirely Alex's idea. She was like, you know... There's this movie, and there's this election coming up, and why don't we try to provide a little bit of salve... At
0: least some some ways of thinking about things. Yeah. Because I think we turn to our entertainment, we turn to our media, we turn to our content to help us understand the world around us. And I'm personally a very big fan of this movie. And I you know, I wrote an article about uh, The Dead Zone a couple of years ago, actually, now for Collider about how uh, Stephen King and Donald Trump, through this iteration of The Dead Zone, predicted Trump yeah. in many, many ways. Called it. So I have stuff to say about that. I have more stuff to say about the film in general role um, and also about how we got here. Yeah. How the fuck did we get here? And that is a question I think any sensible person has been asking themselves for a very long time. Mm-hmm. You know, back when I was writing my First book about new French extremity, it was, you know, this far right party led by the Le Pen family that was kind of coming to prominence in French elections. Then Brexit happened. Then Trump happened. Mm-hmm. It's this really scary, autocratic, conservative, hard conservative, uh, almost to a f- point of fanaticism thing that is rising around the world. Mm-hmm. And right now we're looking at Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and saying, oh, gosh, I hope you guys can make this stop. Uh-huh you know, put a fucking, you know, stake in the ground and say no more and we're going to turn this around. And as many of us know, it's not just up to Kamala Harris and Joe Biden. It is electoral colleges. It is gerrymandering. It is voter suppression. And certainly what I've been seeing right now is some of the most marginalized people in these communities who are being suppressed to vote, getting out there early, waiting hours, if not a whole day in voting lineups to vote, to ensure that it doesn't happen again. And I hope that Biden and Harris win and that voter reform can be enacted so that this kind of effort and this kind of work doesn't have to happen again and that it can be a free and fair election without a fucking monster at the helm yelling at all of us on Twitter. Yep
1: (laughs) you said it. So without further ado should we enter the dead zone? Oh let's. 1983's David Cronenberg lensed Stephen King penned dead zone.
0: If the future were in your hands. The daughter's screaming.
1: The house is burning.
0: Would you change it?
1: Hurry, hurry.
0: It's not too late. Touch this man's hand, and you're in the grip of the dead zone. I've had another episode. Only the imagination of author Stephen King could take you there. Johnny, wait! With a power that
1: alters the future lives of those you love.
0: You want to kill your own son?
1: I want you out of here.
0: I'm scared, Dad.
1: Or of those you fear. I have had a vision that I am going to be president of the United States someday, and nobody, I mean
0: nobody, is going to stop me. Is it a power for good or for evil? If God has seen fit to bless you with this gift, you should use it. Bless
1: me? You're the devil for me. Who are you? Who sent you? I'm scared, sir. <laughs>
0: What's happening to me? We're gonna get married. Tony, don't leave me, please. <laughs> Didn't you see how clear it all is? Not only can you see the future. I can change it. Kelsey, Kelsey,
1: Kelsey, Kelsey. I was there, I saw it. Put your hand on the scanning screen and you'll go down in history with me. I
0: saw his face. I stood there. I did nothing. on it! Stephen King, The Dead Zone. Johnny Smith is a school teacher who falls into a five-year coma after dropping his would-be girlfriend, Sarah, off after a date. When Johnny wakes up, he learns Sarah has gotten married and has a child, and that he can see things about people's past, present, and future when he touches them. After a brief tryst with Sarah, Johnny is sought out by the Castle Rock Sheriff, Bannerman, to help them catch a serial killer. Johnny, through his ability, is able to see that the killer is a police deputy, Frank Dodd. After catching Dodd, Johnny moves to a more remote location where he tutors kids and is eventually approached to help the son of a really wealthy man by the name of Roger Stewart. Johnny easily gets along with the son Chris and the family, and thereabouts he learns of a Senate candidate by the name of Greg Stilson. Johnny is fired from his tutoring job after he predicts that Chris's ice hockey game will kill several of the children playing, which comes to pass, save for Chris, who refuses to play after Johnny's premonition. Finally, Johnny encounters Stilson, and he sees that Stilson will become president and start an unnecessary nuclear war. Determined to stop Stilson, Johnny plans to assassinate him. Johnny misses his shot and is killed by Stilson's bodyguard, but not before Stilson takes Sarah's baby to protect himself with killing his career and causing him to commit suicide." Yep. So. This movie is about an hour and 40 minutes. Mm-hmm. The Stephen King book is just under 500 pages. Mm-hmm. And I did have an opportunity to read the book mm-hmm. before recording this. And I actually really like the book. Mm-hmm. It's very, very kind of roaming in terms of the story goes. Yes. Very Stephen king ass in that, mm-hmm. like, Johnny passed a postman here's three pages about that postman's backstory. Um, and that's fine. And once you're kind of in it, and you know, he's a he's a good writer to just kind of read. But in terms of the film, it's a very economical version of the story. And the script was written by Jeffrey Boehm. Um, and do you see what else that Bohm wrote? What else did he write? The Lost Boys. Is that right? Yep. He wrote The Lost Boys. I wrote Indiana Jones and the Last Crusades, a couple of the um, Lethal Weapon sequels. And he had a kind of like very prolific Hollywood career and died actually quite young, Mm. um, I believe, of a brain tumor back in 2000. But um, Cronenberg has said that uh, there was really a lot of bandying about of the script when it came. Uh, Jeffrey Bohm was one of the first people to take a stab at it. Uh, Dino De Laurentiis, who's the producer, kind of did away with it. Stephen King wrote a version of it, which is apparently very sprawling, very slashery, really focused on the Castle Rock killer. Mm -hmm. Um, And then someone else was brought in. And then they eventually wound back at Bohm's script, David Cronenberg, was bought on board. Uh, And this is really Cronenberg's first big studio film. Mm -hmm. Uh, He would then go on to do The Fly and then kind of go back into more indie territory. But Cronenberg has said multiple times that the final script is really a collaboration between himself bohm and the producer deborah hill
1: mm-hmm. deborah hill whose name you might recognize from oh I halloween don't know, the fog some amazing amazing films and uh i feel like she's really getting her due lately a lot of people are like hey hey let's uh take the spotlight away from john carpenter for a second cool. and uh this unsung hero of modern horror and yeah indeed stephen king and david cronenberg it's feels like a slam dunk right it feels like one of those great hollywood dream mergers of a great mind and a great mind i'm not entirely sure i agree that this film is economical i I, I know that it's a sprawling story and like so much of the story has these little details these little nuances that tease out these really interesting philosophical threads that i'm not entirely sure the film ties up Mm -hmm. to my complete satisfaction um i was reading that the people involved were referring to the film as a triptych. Mm-hmm. It was kind of a setup of Johnny and his relationship with Sarah. There was the immediate aftermath of the accident and him realizing his power and then the third part was just kind of him deciding whether or not to wield it in this way and so everything that happens in the film needed to happen to get where it's going but I do feel like it's a bit of a slump. I feel like the horror elements, insofar as that script that was thrown out was so slashery and brutal, the horror elements in this is... They're maybe a little bit soft. Mm-hmm. But um, are you going to tell them what you told me?
0: Oh, well, you know, let us let me just take I off. only
1: bring it up because I just really want to invite some opinions from the public on this.
0: Sure, and that's fair. So I'm going to take off my feminist hat <laughs> right now to say this. I find Christopher Walken as Johnny Smith to be so... Sexy in this role? Is that not a feminist thing to say? I don't know. I don't want to objectify someone. I I don't. But this is just me, Alex, talking right now. You know, he's got a great wool coat. He wears some chunky knits. He's kind and there's so much responsibility. I just... I, ah.
1: He definitely glows up after his coma. And, like, he does away with the glasses and, and the flips bangs. his hair. Out. Yep, yep. He's like, I'm I'm badass now. I've mm-hmm. seen some fucking shit. He is such an interesting leading man. Like, it's not that he's not charismatic. He is. He, he's a great, great actor. But his charisma is so odd that it's, frankly, distracting.
0: Yeah, I think I really like it, too, because I find he has a very awkward yeah. kind of charisma. And he's one of the few actors I was thinking about in my walk up here that I find him to be in this role incredibly like warm and inviting and troubled in a way that he doesn't want to hurt people so he's constantly trying to withdraw but he can't help himself except to act or try to act and try to help people. And on the same token, on the flip side, he as an actor, Christopher Walken can be so menacing mm-hmm. and so scary. Like I really think that scene in uh, True Romance between Christopher Walken and Dennis Hopper mm-hmm. is just an incredible piece of acting. Mm-hmm. It, it, I know what's gonna gonna happen each and every time i see it but i'm like oh no dennis hopper it's time to run (laughs) um it's it's amazing so i i think i kind of lived my my film fan life just being like oh christopher walken is like this weirdo uh heavy and i only really came to the dead zone um as a fan of the film when i first saw it probably i want to say like Five or six years ago? Yeah. So it's a recent uh, favorite of mine, relatively speaking. And just to see him as this kind of charming, kind, good lead, I think is really interesting. And I'm sure if you've listened to this podcast for a while, uh, one of the hardest things I think to do as an actor is play good, Mm. because it's hard to be just a good person on screen. You have to kind of bring an energy, a a charisma, a light to it Mm -hmm. um, that I think he does. and, And I really... I really enjoy the performance. I feel like he really personifies Stephen King's
1: trademark American everyman. He's got these protagonists who always have the very best of intentions until something external comes along that forces them into these extenuating circumstances. And then they have to choose to either be really good or they'll fall victim to the dark side. If they're an alcoholic or an asshole, there's always a valid reason why. And it's always something that's tragic, which is a little bit white male, which I guess I can't really fault him on but it's also kind of boring um i came to the dead zone when i was in high school and i was just devouring stephen king novels and devouring any movie adaptation so at the time i had no sense of cronenberg and even now looking back i can see some canadian sensibilities that we're going to talk about but it doesn't have that cronenbergy over-the-top transformative body horror feel that has made cronenbergian an adjective but that's okay I just—I don't know. I find Johnny a bit beige, despite his amazing Technicolor housecoat. But—and then there's the title. I I think— One of the reasons why The Dead Zone never sticks out in my head Is I feel like it doesn't really suit the title Mm -hmm. Indeed, the movie and the book have slightly competing interpretations Of what The Dead Zone is In the book, it's the damaged part of Johnny's brain That is giving him these visions Whereas in the movie, Christopher Walken is kind of He's referring to The Dead Zone as the aspects of his visions That aren't set in stone That which can be changed And that which he can act on It's like Mm -hmm. a blind spot Like a literal blind spot And I thought that was so interesting And again, this film, you know, it tiptoes around really interesting questions about fate and determinism, and we're going to talk about that, but ultimately it's where it goes in the end, right down to the fucking hats
0: right down to the fucking hats and you know I think seeing this film as again as I mentioned when I came to it as you know starting to see this rise of a really fucking scary version of the right mm-hmm. um, you know then kind of personified itself and and I remember when the editor of Collider reached out to me to see if I wanted to write something for you know Halloween two years ago and mm-hmm. I'd actually met her on the visit uh, the set visit to Pet Cemetery that I did and she was lovely um, Haley she's really cool and really nice I uh, and hey uh, and she reached out to me and was like, hey, you want to write something? We're looking for anniversary stuff. And I was like, oh, let's fucking talk let's about the go. dead zone. And she was super into it and let me write about it. And the more I got into it, the more I kind of thought about it. It was like, this is, you know, if you were watching this film in 1983, maybe maybe under Reagan or, you know, anything else that was going on around the time, you could say like, oh, that feels like a pretty extreme version of things. But now watching it, you know, <laughs> that's nothing coming up on like 40 years later, it's starting to come to fruition, much like a Johnny-esque premonition. And uh, that's something that has really kind of stayed with me throughout all of this. And I think, you know, I think Andrea and I have both taken away very different things from this film and some similar things. But for me, it's about how the individual plays within a community. Mm -hmm. And that's something we're going to talk about in this episode. Mm -hmm. But I do want to mention something spooky that happened on my rewatch for this episode. Please do. So a little bit of backstory. Obviously, I'm fortunate enough to still be employed. Well, not obviously, I am still fortunate enough to be employed right now, uh, and I'm very grateful that I have a good employer who's happy to have us all work from home, and it's, it's all good from that angle. Uh, I had a you know standard internet package, and now that I'm on more Zoom calls, which make me want to peel my flesh off, um, I was getting a lot of lag, so I called my internet provider, and they're like, okay, for an extra ten bucks a month, we can boost up your internet. Uh, and my job was willing to help cover off um, some of those costs. And I was, you know, looking at the site when I was on the phone with this person and I was like, oh, do you say, dear internet provider, that for an extra, say, $15, I can get like a whole TV package? And they were like, well, yes, Miss West, you can. So I went for it. I had a whole conversation with Andrea about That's what about happens it. when you call her Ms. West. It is. I make decisions, <laughs> bold decisions, <laughs> like to get grown cable <laughs> again. Um, anyway, so I did. So I was watching The Dead Zone. I, I watched it off my computer that I connected it to my TV, I turned it off, and I was like, okay, made some notes, thought about it, and then I was like, oh, okay, it's, I, it's not too, too late. I might just watch a bit of AMC Fear Fest. Uh-huh. Because why not? And I turned it on, and it was um, that Eli Roth history of horror. Uh-huh. Uh, which I'm not a big fan of. I'm not the biggest fan of Eli Roth, period. But it was about haunted houses and then it was about Stephen King. Like, the episodes are so all over the place. But anyway, it was talking about haunted houses and then Stephen King's version of the American haunted house or the evil house. And Eli Roth's talking to Stephen King and Stephen King is saying Stephen King-y thing is about his own work. Uh, But then it cut to an interview with Joe Hill, his son. Mm -hmm. Um, And Joe Hill said, I'm going to paraphrase because I was frantically writing this down after he said it, uh, that his father's writing is very new Testament-esque, that the idea is that a force of darkness can be held back through a great sacrifice. Hmm. And I thought that was very applicable to The Dead Zone. Mm -hmm. And we're going to talk about Cronenberg a bit more, but where I found Cronenberg kind of fit into this Dead Zone puzzle of this film Mm -hmm. is that in reading The Dead Zone, which, again, I really liked as a book, Mm -hmm. it's a very, like, Stephen King, goopy-feeling book. Like, he's in his feelings when he's writing it. And I think Cronenberg lends a kind of iciness to this film, yes. a kind of detached quality. Mm-hmm. And I the only other place I've seen that was actually in The Shining with Kubrick. Okay. Um, and then I was watching an interview with Cronenberg, and or I think I was reading one, rather, that he said, I feel like I kind of put my stamp on this film, you know, through the settings and the atmosphere and things like that. But when it came to the characters, my characters are always kind of fucked up. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these characters, uh, you know, especially Johnny and Sarah, are good people normal people yeah. really normy, good people mm-hmm. and he was like i felt that kind of tension between a really scary world and this goodness was really really interesting mm-hmm. um and he was also kind of saying you know i was just coming off of making videodrome which is a very dark esoteric film mm-hmm. so to kind of do something in which in my world would be considered light it was a slight relief. Ah, that's great. I love that he mentioned that detachment.
1: I just uh, wrapped up the November-December issue of Rumorg, Morgue, and, you know, I am grasping this year, guys. Like, it is not about the latest big Hollywood horror movie that's coming out, and I just interviewed the director, and it's a straightforward feature. Wham, bam, I am grasping at straws. So the festival circuit was in full swing, and I noticed that there was a lot of great Canadian horror content coming out Really interesting Canadian stuff So I wanted to do a cover story On Canadian horror And I had a series of Canadian horror movies One of them was Brandon Mm Cronenberg's Possessor Among others, however, I wasn't able to find Kind of a narrative streak that ran through it They weren't all sci-fi, they weren't all wilderness They were kind of all over the place So I had to try to distill what it was That was Canadian about them And that's the word that kept coming up Was detached, a weird detachment And I remember discussing it with Rue Morgue's president and he was saying, you know, Canadian films have this detachment because we're not desperate to insert ourselves in the narrative. We're not desperate to this is a great American fable. This speaks to what our people are trying to do and trying to say. Canada doesn't really have that compulsion. No, we're reactionary. That's exactly right. So I think detached is an iciness.
0: Cronenberg talked about this. Uh, again, it's it's a very kind of funny interview series. We'll link them in the show notes. They're from like 1983 when this film came out and mm-hmm. they're series of Separate interviews: one with Cronenberg, one with Deborah Hill, and one with Martin Sheen, who plays Greg Stilson. Yep, uh, talking to all of them, and they're they're very interesting interviews, each and every one of them. Um, but Cronenberg was kind of saying, you know, the the interview question was something like, "Why are you the person to direct a film about the American politics process?" Mm-hmm. And Cronenberg was again very erudite, as he usually is, and Always. was like, "It's actually upsetting, I find how." Articulate he is, and he just seems to manifest brilliant answers. I just love him. I love him too. He's almost as sexy as Johnny. He kind of is. He has a he's really got a hot, thing. Yeah, he's got, he's a thing. got a thing. I'm with you on that. But he was saying, uh, he's like, well, I actually think I'm a really good person to talk about the uh, American political system because I'm an outsider. Looking in, and you know, you can't always see the things that are right in front of you. And use this analogy: like when you're a fish, you don't know what water is, but we know what water is because we're out looking at water. Brilliant. I, I think that's a great way to think about this film. And you know, it was shot in Canada. It was shot in Niagara Falls. You can tell. You can tell they're fucking. Oh, cold. it's so cold. <laughs> it so cold. And those scenes with like the Castle Rock Killer when they're right on the water, I was like, oh, I know oh, that cold. Fucking cold, cold. yeah. <laughs> These aren't CG breath clouds coming out of their mouths.
1: It's damn cold. So I wanted to kick off this discussion with uh, just a little bit of a clarification in terms with regard to the philosophical threads that I mentioned earlier of this film. Fate versus destiny versus free will and determinism. I found that I didn't fully understand the nuances between these terms, and so let's go through them really quick. Fate comes from the Latin word fatum. Which means has been spoken, and that is where circumstances outside of your control establish a preordained path. Destiny, on the other hand, pertains to your future, which you shape by your own choices. It's the destination that's, that's, part of the word, destiny. If you practice guitar enough, you're destined to be a skilled guitarist. Destiny is like walking along a path and encountering forks in the road where you make choices and fate is more like going down a slide. They both deal with a predetermined future, but destiny implies choices and agency while fate does not. And that's something else that determines your fate can be cosmic, religious, supernatural, luck, or chance, but it's always outside of someone's control. And then there's free will and determination and these are more philosophical measures. This is like less terminology and more approaches. Free will posits that we make decisions and we do what we want, whereas determinism is the belief that every event, including our own actions, are caused by. By another previous event, and determinism negates free will because if anything is contingent on what happened before, we can't be completely free. And I think the biggest example that comes up again and again in literature, and indeed in pop culture, is our good friend Oedipus. Oh, that guy! That guy. And I think we all know Oedipus. Like we know the Oedipal syndrome of like weird incesty. Impulses, but actually, what that legend is about, the ancient Greek legend is about when Eddie was born, a (laughs) prophecy foretold that he would kill his dad and marry his mom. You like me calling him Eddie? I like that. It helps me uh, remember how it's pronounced. Anyway, the prophecy foretold of this. His dad found out about it and so his dad abandoned him in the wilderness to circumvent the prophecy. Oedipus later learned of the prophecy and so he decided to ditch his parents but he didn't realize he was adopted and wound up fulfilling the prophecy Mm -hmm. anyway. So insofar as we all know Oedipus as the guy who famously fucked his mom, he's the guy who tried to get away from a prophecy using his own free will, which inexorably twisted him back to his fate. So I thought that was worth mentioning that, uh, you know, Eddie made many choices, but even in the knowledge of his prophecy, his fate still came to pass. And literature fucking loves this.
0: Oh, God. And yeah, especially in Greek theater, in mythology and all those things, the fates are personified. Three of them, yeah. Yeah, there's three of them. They're walking on stage. They're telling you shit. They're uh-huh. yelling at uh-huh. characters. They're setting shit up. There's a lot of stuff that goes on with fate. And I think fate, determinism, destiny, those kind of three things, I, I think we often, in our contemporary culture, we, we look around and we say what was meant to happen yeah. you know there's so many shareable quotes and memes that I see on Instagram that are like the things that did not happen are to guide you to the higher path because we want this magical thinking we want the sense that the shit that goes wrong or right in our lives was meant to be well, We're, but they weren't our fault they weren't our fault and they are guiding us to Something, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I sometimes subscribe to those things, especially in my darkest hours, because it's it usually not hurting anyone. Oh, and you if know, it things, comforts you. Then it's... it comforts me. Yeah. Things happen for a reason. You go through shit for a reason. Yeah. You come out stronger. You do that, and maybe it is just a character building thing. As I'm often telling you, Andrea, to build your character. <laughs> that all of your hardships. Are... Well,
1: you are telling me to uh, to to fight through it, because in the end, you know, like all these choices lead up to something and that is my destiny yeah but i want to talk about dr Wizak before we go any further uh, yes because i felt like he was he was the character that i had the most feelings about even though those feelings mostly center around confusion i couldn't nail dr Wizak. he was you know i'm not going to say that he's inconsistent you him. I, I couldn't <laughs>
0: Not like Christopher Walken or David Cronenberg. Oh, that popped collar, wool coat. The
1: ice is going to break. <gasps> okay, feminist hat back on. Uh, who she got hot it's in here. A, it's hot. Dr. Wizak wouldn't talk to his own mother because he believed he wasn't meant to know her after what happened. And when I saw that, I was like, okay. Like, it checks out. He's a man of science. He doesn't want to fuck with abilities beyond the natural world that he understands. But then, he is also the one who pushes Johnny over the edge when it comes to Hitler. He's the one who says he would act against Hitler if he had prior knowledge of the Holocaust, even if it resulted in his own destruction. So on the one hand, he believes that fate is what separated him from his mother. But now that fate has brought him information through Johnny, he's set forth his own destiny that he will never
0: know her. Well, I think this is such an interesting point within the film. And I I think this film takes pains to show the trauma of being rendered paralyzed or ineffectual in a moment of possibilities. Mm. I think you see that particularly when, uh, Johnny views the Castle Rock killer. Mm-hmm. He was not able to stop that murder and he gets very angry and upset. And I think the notion that for Wisek, it's he was a child. He couldn't do anything. You see, you know, his mother putting him on a cart and hoping for the best mm-hmm. and, you know, him not knowing what's going on as a child. And I think it's these moments of paralysis where we don't act that become these sources of anxiety. Mm-hmm. And I think it's that source of anxiety for Wysak and I think for Johnny as well. So in each instance as a child and then with the Castle Rock Killer case that kind of pushes them both forward to say, if you can stop someone who's going to do something really bad, then maybe you should stop them. Mm-hmm. And I think this is an interesting time to bring up a kind of, I would say it's a popular theory uh, hypothesis that is uh Most often known as the Grandfather Paradox. Okay. It's also known as the Hitler Paradox. And I noticed... Very different vibes. Very different. (laughs) Your grandfather didn't just yell at you in German? My nono wasn't a saint, but... Um, But both the book and the film each have, like, a moment where they kind of call out to each other, where, you know, it's Johnny kind of saying to Weizek, what would you do? If you could stop Hitler, would you stop him? And I was like, this all sounds very familiar, which led me to the grandfather paradox. So the grandfather paradox is all to do with time travel. If for some reason you needed to stop yourself from being born and you could go back in time and kill your grandfather, Mm -hmm. that would then necessitate either your mother or father never being born and then you never being born. Oh, I call that the Terminator paradox. Exactly. Um, And I'm going to get to the Terminator in just a second. Sick. So, uh, but it kind of leads into this thing of like, if you were never born then why would you, then there's no one to go back to kill your grandfather. Right. Uh, same thing with Hitler. If you go back in time to kill Hitler, then there's no reason for you in this kind of moving forward world yeah. linear time to go back and kill him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's been so much fictional writing about this kind of particular Hitler question. There's a Twilight Zone episode. Uh, Stephen Fry wrote a book about it, the British really? comic. It's like a fiction book? Yeah. Um, and basically all they kind of do is like, yes, you assassinate Hitler. But then Hitler's mother adopts a child and raises it as like Ronald Hitler. And this child then rises to the same amount of power. Mm. Um, The Reich also kind of finds another emblem that makes them rise to power, Mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. these things are predetermined and they're gonna fucking happen. Mm -hmm. And you cannot avoid it. And that is also what the Terminator franchise is about, my Mm -hmm. friend. And for those of you who would like to know more of our thoughts about the Terminator franchise, uh, there's a $2 episode on Patreon where we talked about the most recent film.
1: Oh, yeah! yeah, And we
0: also talked about the whole franchise. But we go more in-depth into the whole Terminator thing there. Mm -hmm. However, it is. John Connor wants to stop the rise of the Terminator, so he sends his BFF Kyle Reese back, who fucks his mom, who causes John Connor to be born. Mm -hmm. It is this cyclical thing, it is this paradox, that all All kind of points to this was always going to happen. That's right. The nuts and bolts of how it's going to happen might alter and change, but these things were destined. They were going to happen. They were fated to happen. The
1: details are trivial, and it's because Skynet is an institution. It's bigger than the individual, and I think that's where we're going to go a little bit later. Yeah. Cool.
0: So... We kind of need to talk about the Republican elephant in the room. (laughs) Nice. And Stilson. Yes. Stilson, this figure that kind of looms over the film. And I think that Cronenberg and Bohm and Deborah Hill did a really good job of integrating this character in a really smart way because in the book, it's kind of like a parallel story. Uh, it's mainly about Johnny in the book, mm-hmm. but Stilson kind of factors in. There's an opening scene where Stilson kicks a dog to death that's quite upsetting. So you mm-hmm. know right off the bat, this guy's an evil fuck. An <laughs> evil fuck. Selling like Bibles and then Kicking a dog to death because mm-hmm. he can, mm-hmm. so you have got this sort of Damocles hanging over the story. But Cronenberg and Baum and Deborah Hill did away with all of that and just started to slowly introduce Stilson throughout the film. Uh, and I think actually one of the greatest examples of show don't tell in film, mm-hmm. which I think is paramount to being a great filmmaker, is you know Johnny going to that small town when he's tutoring and that billboard of Stilson kind of slowly going up. Yeah. So it's this figure of Stilson that's kind of looming. And he's a little weary of building momentum. This kind of working class hero Mm -hmm. that he doesn't understand. Uh, And in the book, Johnny becomes quite obsessed with Stilson. Like he has binders at various points, like tracking Stilson and all of his movements. But in the film, it's a lot more subtle. It's much more guttural. The kind of impact that Stilson has. I like how he's introduced through the rich friend. Yes, that Stilson is working the system. He's greasing palms. And that he can't, Johnny actually can't get a read on him at first because Stilson puts a pin in his hand. Yeah. Like his electoral vote for Stilson. Pin.
1: Yeah. It's like a barrier. It's yeah. It's like a gloss.
0: And I think that is something that we struggle with a lot of our politicians. And I think that's because the rhetoric of politics has become so stupid.
1: It's so artificial and contrived. Like we expect our politicians to lie. Mm-hmm. We expect, like I, I discovered this year for the first time, the October surprise Oh yeah. as a <laughs> concept yeah. I didn't know that existed before but it's politicians are expected to play dirty they are expected to strategize we know that they lie the question is who lies the best
0: yeah and what lie do you want to believe the mm-hmm. most so I think it's important to go back and kind of look at where this all started and the American ideal of individualism. Yes. I think, as most of us know, America, uh, Canada as well, because this is not a referendum that Canada is so much better than the States. It's really not. Fuck to the hell no. 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 We've got universal health care, and we have leaders who admit that climate change is real and are trying to do various things about it. That's about what we got. But we've got this splintered left mm-hmm. where we've got two parties
1: on the left, and so uh, often we find ourselves strategically voting against conservative, and there are great candidates in a new party, the NDP, that everybody wants. Everybody wants to vote. I have never had feelings toward a politician like I did for Jack Layton. Yes, a good man. I believed in him. And, you know, I found myself voting against him just to vote against the Conservative Party. And it's fucked and it's wrong.
0: Anyway. And I will say I do really like the current NDP leader, which is the leftist uh, political party in Canada, Jugmeet so sign. Oh, good. He's great. I really, really like him. But he's currently with it, he's with the kids. He's very, very smart. And um, I would love to see him become prime minister one day. And I hope he <laughs> does. But in the meantime, we have Justin Trudeau, son appear, Pierre, Elliot Trudeau, another former mm-hmm. liberal prime minister. And he is a centrist left. Mm-hmm. And I will just say I voted for him in strategic votes in the past. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's faltered on promises of getting clean water to indigenous communities. It's so fucking upsetting and it's so fucking gross. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we constantly try to work to keep him accountable. He's, you know, kind of reneged on some promises, but essentially he's not an abomination. I, I feel
1: like it's all about the lesser of two evils.
0: exactly. And especially when set in comparison
1: to Trump, he looks like a fucking prince.
0: But let's go even further back. Let's. So so colonists came to North America. Some of them came up to Canada, and we were doing our thing. And other people went to what is now known as the United States. And they fought wars to release themselves from British power mm-hmm. because they thought it's bullshit. I don't like it. I want my freedom. I want individual liberty. I want the fucking American dream. Mm-hmm. And they fought wars over it whereas in canada where we still have a lot of british influence we wrote a letter to england and we said may we please separate and be our own country and they were like no and then we wrote another letter and we were like please 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 and they were like oh my god stop with the letters fine go be your own country Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then there's some french people here too uh but um One of the really interesting things I think about the difference between America as it was founded was it was founded as a republic with a president. And it was founded on the notion of checks and balances, that everything in its kind of system of government was to prevent a rise of someone like Trump. And nothing was ever going to go too far right. And nothing was ever going to go too far left. And everything would kind of keep a centrist even keel, where the populists notions of what was desired by the people was going to be upheld. Mm-hmm. Whereas in England, you have a parliamentary system, which is what we have in Canada. Now, in England, different from Canada, it is a constitutional monarchy. So it's parliamentary sovereignty. Uh, so no part of the government can challenge the parliament. The parliament is the source of power. Mm-hmm. And the parliament is not the king or the queen. They're more of a kind of head of state, the king, like, currently it's Queen Elizabeth. She's the head of state, and she gets to, quote unquote, consult. She gets to approve ministers. She does all this stuff, and it's a bit of showboating. Yeah. Because it's it's a nice tourist trap. Right. Um, and the PM, the prime minister of England, is elected out of the cabinet, and the cabinet members are voted in by the British public. Whereas in America, um, again, it was this ideal that one part of government, whether it be the Senate, um, the House, Or the federal government, the executive branch, meaning the president and what have you, or the judiciary, which is the Supreme Court, which we are currently witnessing a (laughs) terrifying hearing of. And I, I hope that some kind of mystical force takes over and Amy Coney Barrett is not brought to the Supreme Court. Uh, but it seems like she will be. But it was kind of designed that all of these things could potentially work in opposition so that it would force conversation, mm-hmm. so that it would force debate, so that it would force all of these different branches to work together. However, America is the only country that has an electoral college. And the electoral college is where you see someone like Trump come to power, where different votes from different states are weighted differently. And that's how Trump found his path to presidency. Yeah. And as many people will remind you, Hillary won the popular vote yeah. by a good amount, mm-hmm. by like three million votes, I want to say. But this electoral college was kind of designed to give the states, the individual states, more control over power and process.
1: Like based on the population of that individual state, right? Yes. Like I did a bit of research on this uh, last election because I was just kind of like, oh, the fuck just happened there? You lost the election and you're president. And what I found was that it's rare that somebody loses the popular vote, but the Electoral College winds up in a president. But it happened before, not that long ago, with Bush number two, who we all thought would be the worst president in history, perhaps. Yes, the 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 war
0: criminal, who we now think is fine because we've seen Trump and because Bush now paints portraits of cats. Yeah.
1: But again, like you were saying, that was kind of that was meant to be a safeguard. And now it has become the deciding
0: factor. And the other important thing to note is that in the parliamentary system, the prime minister in England, in Canada, doesn't have a set term. They can be challenged, and they're challenged repeatedly, and it can be brought to an election. So that's why we've seen Trudeau come out of two elections on top. The last time, it came out much weaker than the first. Mm -hmm. So he now honestly has to work much more with the NDP, which is our more lefty party that I think Andrew and I both more identify with Mm -hmm. uh, to make things happen. And he was almost recently called to an election, but again, was able to work deals with the NDP, so that didn't happen. Mm -hmm. However, the American president has a fixed term they are in power for four years impeachment be damned whatever the fuck and even if he was impeached in this case the trump presidency would then go to mike pence who is also a fucking monster Mm -hmm. so that's the kind of tricky power play that can happen and in this americanized version of a republic where checks and balances were meant to moderate Uh, And keep an even keel on everything, they have essentially triangulated in such a way that they've actually created one person, the president, with more power than anything else. And you can see that right now, like, the Senate is in chaos and they're having trouble voting shit through. So that's why you're seeing a lot of things go to executive order by the president and by the Supreme Court judiciary section. Oh, you mean like TikTok? Yeah. (sighs) (laughs) And I will say this about myself. Um, my father is British. My mom is American. So I've always kind of grown up with these two, like, people who love each other very much, but we're always just like the British way, the American way. And my mom is very much like the Kennedy era oh, of yes. American. And she believes in the good and the, you know, fucking Camelot America. Bless her heart. I know. But as my father always says, you know, one of the great things about Parliament Is that people have to show up. If you're the prime minister, you have to sit in fucking parliament and get yelled at. To eat shit all day. Like, I sent Andrea an email, which she did not get to because she's quite busy, I'm sure, uh, that actually has YouTube clips of... The British Parliament just, like, either attacking currently Boris Johnson, who is also a fucking fuck, Mm -hmm. Um, uh, you know, and then previous to that, Jeremy Corbyn going after then-Prime Minister Theresa May, and they were just going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And you're watching these kind of, you know, whether they're evil or not, relatively intelligent people have to battle with each other and debate and debate in front of their an audience of their peers who are Mm -hmm. going, here, 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 oh, (laughs) oh. Whoa, 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 whoa. And it's 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 like a fucking gladiator tournament. It requires
1: a, a kind of fortitude that yeah. I I associate with politics. It's, you have to be willing to fight and debate and rhetoric and rhetoric and fight and debate. And as
0: my father has always said, since Trump got elected, he was like Trump could never withstand that. Never. He could never withstand you know intelligent people and politicians on the left or even moderate Republicans calling out his shit. No, his spin doesn't work at all. He gets to hide away in the White House Mm -hmm. and go to his rallies and make insane proclamations and get people really sick with coronavirus because that is his want. Because that is what he can do. And it is so scary, and I will Say this, um, because one of the things that has always confused me about the states, and I only really realized it in my early 20s when I kind of, you know, went off and I was living on my own in Montreal, was the importance of healthcare. Yeah. Now, in Canada, we do have universal healthcare. It doesn't cover things like, uh, dental, it doesn't cover vision, it doesn't cover, you know, therapy, mm-hmm. uh, things like that. But at its core, it'll cover things. So me as a broke student, I could go to a walk-in clinic and figure out I had a sinus infection or I had this or I had that and get treatment. And yes, I would have to pay for prescriptions, but I wasn't getting charged to go get help. And it just fucking dawned on me that there are people in the most powerful country in the world currently, though Mm -hmm. I think that'll change in a few years, that don't have access to that. And that is terrifying and i was reading up about why america doesn't have healthcare and it's because they fought for individualism yeah they fought to be able to choose what kind of health care they wanted. But then it has also been obfuscated by insurance lobbyists
1: mm-hmm.
0: who are pouring money into secure and fund up their own ways to deal insurance, to provide insurance, to provide this, that, and the other. And it's absolutely terrifying. And I will say this, and I'm going to quote my father here. Nice. He says that America is a third world country with first world power. Oh shit. Skiddy thing. Yeah. And he says that mainly because of universal healthcare yeah. because he can't believe that there are hundreds of millions of people yeah who are unable to go to the doctor. Yeah. And just get a diagnosis. Yeah.
1: It's a question of like do you want to survive and be in debt or you just let these conditions take over and it, I'm getting older. Stuff's starting to break down, stuff's starting to get fucked up, and uh, I've taken it for granted for so long.
0: You know, I remember when Trump got elected and people were saying, he's going to run this country like a business.
1: Like that's a good thing. And I
0: was like, no, the government is not a business, it is a fucking service. Yeah. Did we not all watch seven seasons of Parks and Rec for nothing? <laughs> Like, I want things to be taken care of. And I want to choose the people who I think are the best to be in charge of that. That should be the baseline of living in a first world country. Yeah. So that's my rant about the basis of America and your (laughs) politics. And the (laughs) shitty thing is, the really fucking shitty thing is, is that I'm sure all of our American listeners are like, yeah, I really fucking want universal health care. Yeah, I want this, that, and the other. I want to have access to abortion. I want LGBTQ plus rights. Mm -hmm. I want all of these things. And yet they are getting voted fucking down because the checks and balances over the years have become eroded and they have been subsumed by fucking goblins like Mitch McConnell and people before him, the moral majority, all of these people who made everything bipartisan, who made it an us or them. It's always to them been a zero sum game. So it's never actually about a debate. It's never about an exchange of ideas where I think I have an idea, I think you, Andrea, have have an idea. Let's figure out where the middle ground is so we can make the best choice for constituents. It's like, no, I need to consolidate my power. So fuck you. I'm going to filibuster you. I'm going to block you. I'm going to suppress your voters. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do everything I can to save my own fucking skin. And it is this mutated, perverse idea of individualism that is so corrupt and so, so scary that I'm just so sad because it has done a detriment to all of our ideas, all of our cur- curiosity, all of our ways of being.
1: yeah. Oh. Well let's talk a bit about that erosion because that erosion did not happen in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. That erosion is something that's been happening for a long time and it's been looked at at least on a theoretical level and it's uh, it's a postmodern thing. Postmodern Andrea. Have you gone into that in depth recently? So, ladies and gentlemen, you might be aware that we have a Patreon. And within our Patreon, we have a show called The Glossary of Gore. And Glossary of Gore is where we take a concept that sometimes comes up in the podcast and we just kind of... Deep dive on it We define it We explain it We rip it to shreds Um, Stuff that we maybe mention in passing in an episode But Glossary of Gore is our opportunity to really go at it And so I was due for a Glossary of Gore And it was late And so I thought, what the fuck Let's go big or go home Let's talk about postmodernism Because I don't fully understand it I kind of understand it If I don't fully understand it I'm probably not explaining it all that well So Glossary of Gore, to me, it's such a great exercise and, um, and it's a popular show among our patrons So I did a Glossary of Gore episode on postmodernism And my Glossary of Gore episode looked at how Postmodernism is a critical approach That is set in contrast To modernism, which is the idea That humanity has made progress By applying our Heightened empirical knowledge To institutions, and I talk About how these institutions Were created as empirically True and eternal Which is in itself a throwback To positivist thinking in the Enlightenment era, and I know, I know This is really confusing, but postmodernism Modernism is so confusing, which is why it's a really good glossary of gore. But in a nutshell, just think of how the enlightenment era we discover the scientific method and we decide oh shit now we have the key to all the questions of the natural universe now we have a process that is codified and if it's empirical it's true and if it's true it's eternal and if we apply these pure and eternal principles to institutions they will serve us in perpetuity and god does that ever fucking sound good alas (laughs) (laughs) We took all that hubris and we cemented them into these institutions and we patted ourselves on the back for figuring it all out. And then a little thing called World War I happened. Oh, World yeah. War II happened. And so postmodernism challenges all that. It's an approach that challenges all the knowledge that we took, all the hubris, all the true and eternal rhetoric. And we examined the ways in which that knowledge can fail us in the current context. And postmodernism, it's highly theoretical. It's mostly at the level of academia it's discursive and in fairness it's also not a very solution oriented approach and so it's not very popular it's not very palatable it's not easily trickled down from academia to the common person but progress has to start with identifying the problem right unfortunately here we are we're still trying to address new problems with these old outdated institutions for example the Constitution mm. now, The American Constitution was designed to establish fundamental rights that would apply across all contexts across the country, such that individual states could do what they wanted, but within these fundamental rights each state would have proportional representation but this was the bigger picture and there was a process specified by which the constitution could be amended but it was a deliberately convoluted process and it was designed that way to keep people from making arbitrary changes to it and that makes sense you don't want people abusing this loophole and being like well i've decided that i have a constitutional right to this well it It has to be more difficult than that, and I get that. But it becomes a problem when changes are needed, and that's what we're seeing today. We've got amendments that are outdated. The right to bear arms can fuck right off in 2020. I'm sorry. Some amendments are just too slippery. Mm -hmm. Like the Fourth Amendment about unreasonable search and seizure, hello? Breonna Taylor's murder was a clear violation of this. We have yet to see justice served, and we're not even sure what justice looks
0: like. Well, and that's what I find so infuriating about this system because if you look at America and you say America wants its individualism. It wants to be able to choose which healthcare provider it has, et cetera, et cetera. Choice, freedom, choice, choice. Yeah. And if you believe all of that then why would you not allow your citizens to have access to abortions should they choose? Yeah. Um Access to get married should they choose? Yeah. Access to not get fucking murdered when you're asleep
1: in your bed. How is that not a fundamental right? And there have been 27 amendments made to the Constitution prior to 1992 and not one since. 92 Think of how much The world has changed Since 1992 Like The internet Globalization Every single aspect Of our everyday life Has changed by then But not the fucking Constitution And it's weird Because Satisfaction With the political system In the US Is very low Mm -hmm. So basically Everybody knows That it's flawed And the academics Are critiquing it Actively But We don't have the answers We're pointing out The problems We don't have the answers To make the kinds of changes We need Or perhaps more accurately, we can't agree Mm -hmm. on those answers because of the reasons you're talking about, because everybody's so partisan. It's about digging in your heels and keeping it whatever color you want to keep it.
0: And I think that is something that is fundamentally wrong because, well, this is just me speaking right now, and I don't want to live my life in a vacuum where it's about me, 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 my choice, my things, my this. Yes, I want to have access to rights and things that I can do. And if I choose to do them, I can However, I care about what happens to the person down the street from me, even if I don't know them. I care about the person in the next town over. I care about the person on the reservation. I care about these people because, I'll say it again, this is not a zero-sum game. Mm -hmm. You know, the Earth is a resource, but humanity... We are our own best resource. And if we take care of each other, that will make a difference. What will not make a difference is us fucking barricading in our own little, like, vials of hate and anger. And I think the rhetoric that Trump stokes that it's, you know, it wasn't your fault. It was this other thing. This person was taking something away from you. How dare they? And that's bullshit because we're all fucking people. And we all just want to live our lives and be safe and healthy and happy and spend time with people that we care about. And we are in a pandemic, a global pandemic. That has changed the way we interact with every single thing. Mm -hmm. And we have to take care of each other more than ever. And this pandemic, as many people have said, doesn't watch Fox News. It doesn't watch CNN. It doesn't watch anything. It's going to fucking work its way around. And it worked its way right into a super spreader event at the White House. It doesn't care. And the way we fight it. Is by taking care of each other, by wearing a mask, Mm -hmm. by choosing very carefully the people we interact with, by washing our hands, by being really careful. And it's so heartbreaking to see someone who is the leader of, quote unquote, the free world, flaunt those rules so aggressively and with such glee. And
1: so going back to the dead zone, I mean, like, we go back to Hitler as kind of like the nexus of all evil, the nadir of human nature, like like where humanity went the most wrong. I would easily give my life if it meant that I could make a constitutional amendment toward gay marriage Mm -hmm. in a heartbeat. Sign me the fuck up. Universal health care in exchange for my life? Done. I don't think that's something – God. I feel stupid saying it because it's not even something that I consider especially noble. I think any good hearted, any citizen of the universe.
0: Well, and that's the thing. And that's why Johnny is this good, pure, everyman because he interacts, you know, with multiple spheres of society. Yeah. And he interacts with them with care, with kindness. With goodwill And it comes back to him in good ways. So I think actually Johnny is kind of the inverse of an incel. Oh. Uh, he's a loner. He, he shares that commonality with them. But whereas the incel is this angry, wronged person, mm-hmm. Johnny is scared of the harm he will cause. He is scared of the things he knows. He doesn't want to hurt people. He's, you know, withdraws from the attention because it's too much. He wants to be quiet and alone, but he realizes that he can make a difference. And I think that's really what the dead zone kind of points to is the individual responsibility, the call for greatness in the face of adversity. And that is really powerful because with Stilson, you have – and I think the film really brilliantly sets this up, again, with the, the fucking hard hats – That you love so much. Oh, my God. The fucking hard hats. I couldn't believe it. And that is... The red caps of
1: the 1980s.
0: Exactly. And that is the cult of personality, which Stilson so beautifully represents. And the cult of personality is a pretty common term. And it is a regime or an individual who uses media, propaganda, patriotism, anything along those lines to create the image of a quote-unquote great leader, usually in one state or dominant party states. Uh, Past examples include Mussolini, Hitler, Stalin, Mao Zedong. And the current examples are are Trump, Vladimir Putin, and uh, Xi Jinping, the president of China. And we have seen this kind of obsessive need for greatness. And I think most recently with Trump's COVID diagnosis, he was in the hospital for three days, shot up with every fucking thing you could stem cells stem cells from aborted fetuses and he feels great and he is a great leader oh thank you great leader Uh, like it's this rhetoric which is so he doesn't want america to be great he wants donald trump to be great exactly and he doesn't give a shit about anyone else except Stoking the fires for himself and keeping everything for himself. And it is so scary. And I found this article and we'll link it in the show notes. And it's from The Atlantic and it's called Donald Trump's Cult of Personality Did This. And the quote that I pulled from it is The cardinal belief of Trumpism is that loyalty to Trump is loyalty to the country. And that equation leaves no room for public interest. So the cult of personality has shielded Donald Trump and, in this case, a cipher of Greg. Stelson from responsibility. And I think that scene, the kind of flash forward scene that Johnny sees when um, Stilson's about to do the hand things and all of that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I think it's so interesting that there is another, I think he's a general, and he's there and he's, he doesn't want to do it, and then he does it. He puts his hand on and he says, God forgive me. In an original version of the script, Stilson was going to kill that guy and put his hand, his dead hand on the scanner himself. Mm-hmm. But I like that it's this real general who's just a fucking spineless nothing who's like hope God forgives me and then I think the most chilling moment of this film and I kind of agree with you I'd I'd say the dead zone is horror adjacent it's a hard adjacent horror but I love it and we're here so here we go um, and the most chilling moment to me is when those members of his you know secretaries and, and all of those rush up to him and uh, they say to him we did it we found a diplomatic uh, solution and he says the missiles are flying too late Hallelujah! yeah Maybe. blessed be Not necessary,
1: Mr. President. We have a diplomatic solution. Mr. Vice President, Mr. Secretary,
0: the missiles are flying. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And it is
1: chilling. It's chilling because he's done that outside of the system. Obviously, there is a cabinet. There are those checks and balances. But clearly, this narcissistic megalomaniac gives zero fucks.
0: And I think Cronenberg and everyone involved was very careful to kind of set that scene within a Camp David-esque atmosphere. Mm. It's very rustic. It's rural. And it's like, he just made this fucking decision. And the nukes are gone. And there's nothing they can do about it. You kind of see their faces fall. Mm -hmm. And then you see Johnny. And I think it is such a chilling vantage point that that weight of responsibility, the weight of the responsibility on the individual... I certainly feel throughout this. And I think we struggle a lot with our places within communities, uh, our places within standing up for things that we believe in, uh, our, our ways of taking up space and giving space. I think we're in a really, um, in a way that it can feel very, politicize to do it, but ultimately what you have to do if you're an ally and if you care about this shit is to just show up and to read stuff about the movements and to participate in the ways that feel best. Yeah. And that are important and the movement's needs. So if you are like us, a white person showing up to a Black Lives Matter movement, you make sure to stand in front of the black people and the police officers or mm-hmm. you're close by so that you can intercede and you can put your body in front of theirs. Because that needs to fucking happen. Yeah,
1: while simultaneously decentering your voices, like it, yeah. it, it's work to understand how to be a good ally. And I'm not challenging anything you've said, but
0: yeah, I'm pouring more wine.
1: Pour more wine about this because I just I have to point out, and again, I think this is more of a critique of. Stephen King's tragic, busted alpha male. Would Johnny have been so willingly self-sacrificial had he wound up with the girl? Had he wound up with that kid? Had he benefited from the American dream? Would he have put all that on the line to bring Stilson down? You know, like, I struggle with... Johnny Smith as being this hero when he is so defeated and indeed I sympathize with him when he's kind of you know asking himself you know, I I'm supposed to be grateful for my life but I've spent five years of it in a coma whereas the first time I saw this film I was just kind of like you're lucky to be walking motherfucker you know what I mean you know he has that adulterous tryst with Sarah but then Sarah's with Stilson and yet she's never really challenged for Can you not see
0: through this? I think that's the difference of looking at this film as a kind of pure metaphor versus a morality tale. Uh. And for, you know, a pure narrative metaphor or just even a pure story, you can have those questions. And I think those questions are valid. And they're really interesting questions to ask as a film critic. I think as a morality tale, this film calls into question the role of the individual in service of the greater good. And to me, again, personally... That is the more interesting question, because mm-hmm. like you were saying earlier, you would give up your life for LGBTQ rights, for universal health care, all of those things. And you've got a great partner. He's he's sitting in the other room. We said hi to him. He had a fucking hilarious remark. Did he? About this Tell film. Me. That I just have to die. Like,
1: OK, so <laughs> Johnny and Sarah have their their one night. What? It's not even a night. It's an, it's an afternoon. A, it's an afternoon. The
0: dad's out. The dad's
1: out, but the baby's there. <laughs> I'd like to see the therapy bill that <laughs> came of Little that. Denny. But anyway, uh, just so, you know, she, uh, she makes them all dinner and they have a really weird, awkward, nuclear family happy dinner. But then she's like, this can never happen again. Bye. And she walks away and Dustin just, I didn't even think he was fucking paying attention. And all of a sudden he just chirps, well, that's what you slept on. <laughs> And I laughed and laughed and laughed. <laughs> and, yeah, I think you do have to laugh at stuff like that. I think if John Smith had been this family man, we would have been like, you know, the, the morality wouldn't have been so black and white of him abandoning his family toward his greater good. Maybe the greater good is raising his young son to be the next Paul blah, 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 blah. It's, it's never that clear and it's never that easy. Anyway, I just want. to.
0: No, and I appreciate that. And I think, you know, this film, ultimately, it deals with a series of truths. And I, that's where I think Sarah is a really interesting character. Because in the book, she kind of pops up. And, and, and a lot more time is spent on like this horrible relationship she had before. And like, yeah. it, it's all, it, it's a bit
1: like... Well, you gotta justify going for the good guy, right? Because why would any woman ever?
0: Yeah. Um, and then the Stilson stuff, she doesn't really pop up as a supporter of Stilson in the book and you know and that's fine but I think actually within the film it actually serves to just bring everything narratively together. You want to see her flip
1: right Yeah. when Stilson is holding up her child and she
0: suddenly sees the light. And I think you know it, it kind of goes to serve to another notion uh, that has become very popular in the last few years and that is the notion of post-truth. Ah yes. Yes. So post-truth. Truth is a political culture where facts are ignored, debated, or misinterpreted in favor of emotion or spin. See, is climate change real? Oh, that's a benign example at this point. (laughs) But it's not, because Mike Pence was in a vice presidential debate not a week ago saying, I don't know. So it is. It's a very fucking relevant thing. And the Oxford Dictionary's word of the year, I assume they mean words, but in this case it's word, in 2016 was post-truth after its influence and prominence in Brexit and the presidential election. And the term was actually coined by a writer by the name of Stephen Titch in 1992 in his essay in The Nation after the hard and shameful truths of Watergate, the Iran-Contra scandal, the Persian Gulf War, and that people didn't want to hear the truth anymore. That was his take. That was, like, Tisha's take. Okay. Because they didn't want to fucking hear it anymore. Mm-hmm. Shit was wrong, it was bad, and it was corrupt at the highest power. And People just didn't want to feel that responsibility anymore. And I have a quote that I would like to read to our listeners. Please and thank. And it is from this book. Guys, you all need to read this book or listen to this
1: book. I am currently listening to the audiobook, and I love when audiobooks are read by the author. This book had me cackling so loud this morning that I woke
0: my partner up, and I regret nothing it's brilliant. That's the Andrea Subasati Hard Individualism Hour go. right there. Um, so, this is a book called The Witches Are Coming by Lindy West. I am unfortunately not related to her, might be a little bit. I'd like to think so. Um, but she's a great writer. She wrote for Jezebel for a number of years. She's a great book called Shrill. Uh, it was turned into a Hulu series, which I've yet to see, but I would really like to. And anyway, I'm reading this book. I actually just finished it last so night. It's so
1: fucking good.
0: It's great. It's a series of essays. It's really smart, very insightful, and very readable. So I'm going to condense a few things over a few pages. So, um, forgive the, uh, you know, dot dot dots that you don't get to see, but you're going to hear me read this. Our propensity for always, always, always choosing what is comfortable over what is right helped pave the road to this low and surreal moment in U.S. history. The alt-right has always thrived on obfuscation and disinformation. A few of its founding factions include a misogynist hate movement that insists it's a good faith crusade for journalistic ethics and free speech. Multiple white supremacist hate movements that insist they're simply passionate about, quote, Western culture, end quote, and the disfigured or perhaps unmasked remains of the Republican Party, which has long hidden its ruthless determination to enrich the riches at the expense of the poorest, behind lies about small government and personal responsibility. How did such a conglomerate of transparent bigots achieve enough mainstream credibility to win the White House? Well, because they said over and over that they weren't bigots. The nuh-uh defense. (laughs) And people believe them. Or pretended to because it was easier. Because the alternative meant admitting some complicity in four centuries of American horrors. But my taxes are too high. But Michael Brown was no angel. But I'm not racist. And she goes on and on and on. And there's more in
1: jokes. I swear to God, this book is so, so funny. And, like, it skewers pop culture. Like, that was a really heavy passage. But Mm -hmm. it's so funny.
0: But yeah, I think Stilson represents that easy way, just as Trump represents that easy way. Is it's not your fault. It's like that fucking goodwill hunting scene on repeat in everyone's brain. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. At some point, you have to take accountability and stand up for the people who don't have the same rights and the same protections that you have. And to me, that is the ultimate sacrifice that new testament sacrifice that johnny does and it's really powerful and i think quite moving in the end and i think that you know sarah kind of serves as this again stephen king has never if rarely written a great female character and sarah is the good woman monument is she she's fine a little adulterous tryst. this can never happen again
1: but it ties up this loose end that is sex with me that you're somehow entitled to anyway go on
0: But I think it just kind of goes to show that even a good, likable character can be quote-unquote corrupted within the film because she believes in Stilson and she believes in what he wants to offer and what he wants to do. Whereas we are given through Cronenberg a few different variants of like the, oh, actually, that's really fucking creepy. Or actually, that's really fucking bad. Or, oh, he's trying to suppress the press right now. All things were seen right now in real time and have been seen for quite a while mm-hmm. well I mean I'm not going to say it all comes back to post-modernity
1: but like these things slowly eroded under our noses and society changed so fast that it's kind of it's kind of no wonder that we didn't keep up with it and it, it, it's definitely no wonder that the constitution didn't keep up with it but that's not to say that we don't have the responsibility to act on it now once upon a time elections were predicated on what ran in the news. The news media had a strong sense of responsibility to represent all the platforms in an even and an unbiased manner. But that was long ago. Now, with the reign of social media, there's information coming at us from all directions and it's incumbent upon us to fact check them. And we don't wanna do that. Not only do we not know how, we're really fucking busy. It's late stage capitalism. We have no healthcare. We are trying our best just to stay alive. And once upon a time, we took politicians at face value because it was all we had they had a platform in their debates and their town halls and their campaign trails and while we always knew that there was ugliness simmering under the surface we also understood that to be part of the game whereas now the shitty shit that is under the surface, the shitty shit that comes out in social media the reality quote unquote reality of reality tv which is emblematic of Donald Trump. All that shit is apparent and known. And one of the first things I said to Alex after I rewatched The Dead Zone, she was like, you know, isn't it so beautiful? Well, I'm not going to put words in your (laughs) mouth, but basically you said you loved the fact that Stillson illustrated Mm -hmm. his own monstrosity and that was his undoing. And the first thing I said to that was, that I bet Trump would get away with it. If he can get away with not denouncing white supremacy, if he can get away with bragging about grabbing women by the pussy, and, like, these examples, those are two off the top of my head. There are so many more. But, 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 let's remember Denny the baby was a white male boy. He would weasel his way out of that somehow. He would get birth certificates going <laughs> on. He would build a wall. I honestly think that at this point there is no fucking shit that that worm couldn't weasel his way out of and that is what is different between now and the 80s when this film came out and that is post-truth and that is post-modernism
0: and it is fucking terrifying and we need to call it for what it is absolutely and i think ultimately in this film as we begin to wrap up this conversation please because i am fucking steamed you are like it's it's fair. It's, we're both fucking fired up about this. And I think it's interesting because when we look at Cronenberg's canon and the Cronenbergian aspect that we talked about at the beginning of this episode, is he's often interested in media, science, and the physical body. Again, we have a whole episode on Patreon about that. But you can go listen to that, <laughs> should you choose. Well, I think Stephen King, and I think, Andrea, you are a resident Stephen King expert, but for me, I always see King as being interested in the spirit In the soul of humanity, in the good versus evil, there's a bit of a binary there. Mm. Um, And I think this film brings those things to a head in a really interesting way. So you have this cool detachedness where we're just kind of watching things unfold in front of us through Johnny as our kind of viewpoint into this narrative. Um And so we've got that bit of that ooey gooey heart and soul in there. But we also have this detached quality. And I think this knowledge that Stilson is a symptom, but he might not be the cause. Yeah. I think Johnny has stopped one reality and can die peacefully and knowing that he's Done something worthwhile. But I think both of those kind of ooey gooey humanity spirit things and the cool detachedness are present within the Dead Zone. And I think they come to the same conclusion, which is that Stilson or anyone like him is a threat. And Dodd, by that same token, the Castle Rock Killer, they are threats. To society, I think Dodd is very much portrayed as a misogynist mm-hmm. um, and that kind of incel-ness that I was mentioning earlier. And his mother covering,
1: covering up mother.
0: for him. Those are the white women voting for Trump. Yes. That is a Mrs. Psycho, if I ever heard one. And... I think it kind of this film puts the onus on johnny to stop them in both cases um johnny takes a shot from dodd's mother he is the one to cast a shot at stilson and provoke the response that ends his life ultimately Mm -hmm. and again To quote my father, he thought Trump was going to get assassinated, and he hasn't. And I think my great hope right now is that he loses and he gets indicted on one of the many, many things he could be indicted for and sent to jail.
1: That's the only way. I used to hope for his assassination, and then somebody pointed out to me what a great martyr he'd make, and that is sickening. That is something that I could not fucking stand to watch. Yeah. But I think it's really remarkable that a film— From the early 80s, an American story filmed by a Canadian with all the cool detachment that comes with Canadian filmmaking and all the heart and soul and Americana and I'm a hero of Americana Mm -hmm. coalesces to be so relevant in 2020.
0: And it's also a rather small story because Johnny stops Stilson before he becomes president. He's just a Senate candidate. If only. It's a much smaller story. So in that way, I actually feel like it's quite Canadian. It makes it a cautionary tale. It's a cautionary tale. That's why I say it's a morality tale. It's not this big bombastic, he's, you know, like in blowout. You yeah. know, he's not trying to shoot anyone in front of you know a million people. He's trying to take this person out where he can stop them. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, to me, if I may bring it home for my conclusion. Go for it. I think the dead zone is about the failure of systems. Yeah. It is about the failure of government. The police, as Johnny says to, um, Tom Scarrett at one point you were too close to see it and I mean ACAB Um, (laughs) it is a it's a failure of the again the government the police and the family whether it's Sarah and her husband or Roger and his son who he's trying to push to play a fucking hockey game I mean you want to talk about Canadian (laughs) that is Canadian but it's a failure of all of these systems that the conservative moral majority Republican Party holds up as pure and true and necessary to everyday life And it shows that they are faulty and that they are wrong and that to be held accountable by checks and balances is a fallacy and that it takes the individual. It is up to us as individuals to work in service of the community, of those around us, rather than as the individual. So while the dead zone is this very bombastic take of like, you should try to assassinate a Senate candidate. (laughs) Okay, don't do that. No. And don't please don't do that, but it is a sense of the greater good. one death worth millions of deaths. How can you as an individual impact your community in positive ways? How can you show up? How can you keep showing up? How can you be creative in times of COVID when we are asked to be socially distant as we should be and wear masks? What can you do? And whether it's shutting down friends' stupid jokes that aren't funny and are actually really harmful to having conversations with those around you, to to standing up for the things you believe in, we can impact change. And currently, today, Friday, October 16th in the evening, we are seeing people waiting for hours in line to vote, to cast their ballots, to effect change. And if that doesn't give you fucking hope, I don't know what will. And I think the hope beyond that is if Biden and Harris get elected, that they will help reform things so that it will not have to be waiting in hours to vote. As I mentioned earlier in this episode, that we make it all easy and positive and safe and that people are safe within their communities because that's what this is about. That's what government is meant to do. That is what Johnny Smith died for. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) you had me up until johnny smith look at guys listen Stephen king is not good at naming characters Uh, he's not good at a couple anyway
1: you need to vote but we need to reassess This whole system, and I remember the first kind of activist thing I did was I went to a slut walk, like it Mm -hmm. must have been 10 years ago, and the slogan was, the system isn't broken, it was built that way. I don't think this system was built to fail the way it is failing us. I think society has hurtled in a direction and a speed and a trajectory that we could not have imagined, and... The Constitution can't keep up. The system cannot keep up. It needs to be overhauled. Yes. And it needs to be overhauled from the ground up. And it cannot be overhauled from within by someone like Trump who is going to overhaul it in a way that protects him and harms you. And so – god I'm trying to think of a way to wrap up this conversation in a positive manner but I it's not your fault the system is fucked up and it's broken and we need to fix it and the change is not going to come from within it's going to come from without and I think there are really hard times ahead but I really and truly hope that those of you listening to this episode on November 3rd are looking toward a positive future and looking toward the possibility of change even though it's not akin Candidate that you necessarily want. It's not a perfect
0: candidate. It's not Elizabeth Warren, guys. There is no perfect candidate. You could have had a bad bitch, though. You could have. But maybe she'll be Treasury Secretary. (laughs) That, I think, should be a killer treasury secretary. I think the point is, because I do agree with Andrea, is that we have to work to steer the ship right. And I think a lot of us are. And if it doesn't go the way we all hope and the way we all think it will, then we need to figure out ways to work together, to protect each other, to take care of each other, to figure out how we can move everything forward. Because everything is in our favor. We all want the same things. And people like fucking Trump want to divide us. The people on your social media who call out shit, who try to start fights, aren't actually helping anything. They don't care about you. They care about themselves and they care about the attention. What is important is each other. And there's never a more important time to give a shit about each other. So check in, talk to each other. Organize, see how you can help because we can do it. We're doing it in Canada. And when if and when Biden and Harris are elected, then we have to hold them accountable. It's not a checkout moment. Mm-hmm. It's an ongoing battle moment. And we can do it if we support each other. So
1: on that note, we're going to keep keeping on. And uh, our November episode is coming up. We're doing Picnic at Hanging Rock. Uh, so watch that. Yeah, we still got to watch it. Do your homework. Listen. We got to do our homework. This was a little bonus episode, and I know it got kind of heated, but the intention behind this episode was was to provide some perspective. I know some of you guys come to us for, for our opinions and our thoughts about stuff. and you know. We're Canadian. We're outside of the fish pond looking in, but we're watching with all of the compassion that, like, you can't even imagine. There's no superiority. There's no looking down our noses at, oh, that's going down, undone. Human beings are suffering, and that's something that we feel fundamentally. And uh, we're with you, and we're with this fight, and we feel for you. Our heart breaks for what is going on in America right now, but we're staying diligent. And we know our listeners are going to be diligent and we'll be watching.
0: Yeah. There is always reason to hope. In the darkness, there is still light. So we look forward to that. We look forward to our November episode, uh, Picnic at Hanging Rock, as Andrea mentioned. Again, we are talking to all of our future selves right now. Yes. In a very precarious time. So we hope everyone's doing well. Uh, if it goes the way we all hope it goes, then we'll all be fucking cheersing and then getting to work and holding everyone accountable.
1: And if it doesn't, we'll take care of each other. Yeah. We'll take care of ourselves and we'll get through it. Through horror movies. What the fuck? Until next time. Office hours are closed. Next Thursday, you're invited to watch Rising Tide's live coverage of a gala tribute and salute to Ronald Reagan. Host Haley Barber joins special guest Lady Margaret Thatcher in celebrating the
0: former president's 83rd birthday. Tickets are $1,000 a plate, but you can see the event free on GOP TV. (laughs)